Let me start by reading the passage for us. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father God, thank you again bring us to this crucial text this evening about what it means to follow you, the cost of discipleship. Lord, help us in our walk. Allow us to see areas in our life where we're exchanging, willing to give up so that we can, that we're willing to give up for your name, Lord. Lord, may there be nothing in this world or in this life that can match your worth in our hearts. Help us see the beauty of your son. Lord, allow us to, again also to count the cost of following you, knowing that the cost is indeed great. Whatever decisions we make in this life will have eternal ramifications. Be with us this evening. Allow us to know your word and know you more and to apply your word. In your son's name I pray, amen. Life is filled with different types of agreements and contracts and, uh, and yeah, different types of agreements and contracts. If you've ever rented a car, sometimes the, uh, there's like a little checkbox. They'll ask you if you, um, if you rent this car, then on your way back you need to fill up that tank. And if you don't, there are consequences to that. You agree to those terms. If you're renting a place to live, there are certain agreements as well that if you live here, that you need to take care of the, uh, the, the, the space and that you need to pay your rent every month. There are obviously terms and conditions, things that are big things in life. And there are also little trivial things. Anytime you do an iOS update, they'll ask you, do you agree to these terms? And most of us, we don't read the terms, but we agree to it anyways. But you understand that even for things that you read or don't read, if you agree to the terms, you are bounded to it. Whatever it may be, if you agree to the terms, you must fulfill the terms, otherwise there are consequences to it. In our day and age, even though we have all of these different contracts and agreements, it's amazing that in terms of Christianity, we sometimes think that we can live out the Christian faith according to our terms. We think that following Jesus Christ doesn't have to be according to Scripture, but just whatever I feel in the moment. But we understand that this generation, although they like to define themselves in a certain way and, and, and see themselves as sovereign, we're actually not in relative to who God is. We are under the law of God and that we have to live in this life in accordance to God's terms. But yet when it comes to following Christ, Christians, we understand that we have to follow the conditions that are revealed in Scripture. 
We don't decide what it means to be a Christian. This is what uh, Scripture defines. God sets the terms, and we, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, must abide by these terms. Otherwise, we will suffer the consequences of it. This particular passage has been weighing on my heart this whole week because in a lot of ways, this is a passage that for pastors, it's like evangelizing to those in the church because it's calling all of us to check our own heart to see are we willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ because following Jesus does not take much because it takes everything. It requires you to give up everything to follow Christ. At this point of the book, we're halfway through the book of Mark. And I said kind of throughout this series that this book is written to Gentile audience. People wanted to know this Savior. People are giving up their life. And if you're reading this for the very first time to, to get a taste of who our Savior is, this must be something that they can that to consider and think about. Is Jesus Christ worth following? In light of all of the persecutions, in light of all of the slanders and, and how life is difficult following Jesus Christ, they read this gospel and it's supposed to encourage them to hold on to Christ. At the same time, this book is also very evangelistic in relative to the other four gospels. It's the shortest gospel. It's very quick pace. It goes from one story to the next very rapidly. And it's supposed to show you who our Savior is. This sermon, that uh, again, it's, it's supposed to evangelize to all of us and to really make us check to see, are we willing to give up everything to follow Christ? This is really in a lot of ways for us to test ourselves. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know that when we have small groups, or even in our church, we, we were trying to use this term. You've been using this term a lot about discipleship, how we want discipleship. We want more discipleship. You understand that when we say discipleship, it's not just strictly in terms of just meeting together at a, on a weeknight. It's not, just, it's not that. That's part of it. But what we do when we say we, are, where we want discipleship is that we're constantly challenging each other to go back to living according to scripture. We live life together and we see something that's off and then we use scripture to point each other back to Christ. Because inevitably when we point people to the scriptures and they don't want to live by the terms as that's written and laid out in scripture, eventually people will just deny the faith altogether. If you call yourself a Christian, you agree to a certain way of living. You agree to a certain way of thinking. You're agreeing to a certain way of of, of the way that you live and, and, and your, all your outlook in life. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Notice here in verse 34, Jesus kind of lays out the entire, all the terms, what it means. He said, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And giving a little bit more context of this chapter here. Remember that Jesus has fed the 4,000 uh, people. Uh, were, there was a whole bunch of people following him. Jesus' reputation has grown exponentially. People wanted to bring their sick family and friends to him to get healed. And he heals this man early on in verse 22 to 26. And he is almost like a partial healing. 
And remember, I said that that, I think, was a parable to show that there's a progression in, in all of our spiritual walks. We go from blind to seeing dimly to seeing perfectly clear. And then Jesus heals this person and tells him not to tell everyone. And then, and then in, uh, last time, Tim brought us to Peter's confession. He confessed that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. He wanted to know what people thought of him and what the disciples think. And Jesus said, told them that, oh, Peter said that you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them and taught them that the, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and he ultimately be killed. And you remember what Peter did. He, he brought Jesus aside, away from the disciples, and to re, he did that to rebuke him. Although it's not really private because there was a crowd. You know, all the, the rest of the disciples saw him do this. It was just kind of like, like a feign attempt to try to make it a private conversation. But people saw what happened. And you remember what Jesus told them. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus rebukes Peter. And Peter goes from being this model of a saint and, and, and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and being rebuked and saying that he's really working for Satan in the way that he's thinking. And then now we get to this point where the crowd comes. There's a multitude of people. They are here and they want to... They want to uh, and Jesus wants to teach them a very valuable lesson, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not what the disciples expected. They wanted the crown without the cross. They thought the Messiah was, was going to overthrow Rome and fulfill every political and social problem and fix everything. Jesus rebukes Peter. And now he's going to explain what it truly means to follow him. He says that there's a crowd of people. It's the disciples. It's the crowd of the disciples. It's, it's, it's basically everyone that, he, that can hear him are here. The disciples, there's just another word saying the learners of Christ. I think it's most likely speaking of the 12 disciples here. Um, but Jesus makes his open call. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, and you notice this, if anyone, it's an open invitation to everyone. Now, I know we're generally more reformed, so it sounds like this is some sort of free will passage. But there is, in a sense, a man's responsibility in responding to the gospel call. When you share the gospel with people, it's not, you don't know who's saved. Your job is just to go share the gospel with everyone. And Jesus here, in, 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 light of, in front of all the multitudes, commands them and gives them this stipulation. If anyone wishes to come after me. If he wants to be my disciple, if he wants to call himself a Christian, this is what they must do. And you notice it said, come after me. This is the first usage in the book of Mark. He's saying that this, if you want to follow me, this is what it should look like. He said, first, you must deny yourself. This is, this is self-denial. This is completely disowning your ideas, your thoughts, all the things that's in your life. And, you, and this same word is the same word that Peter would use to deny Jesus later. Now, of all the disciples, Jesus, I mean, Peter was the only one that understands this because he himself would say, I will never deny you. I will never deny you. And you have to see his humility here because he is the author of this book. And he said, he, he remembers this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus said, you must deny yourself. Peter knew what that meant. He knew what it meant to deny Jesus. In, in this momentary weakness, he denies Jesus to preserve his own life. He fails to do what Jesus tells him to do here in this, in, in this part of the gospel. He did not give up all things 
for Christ. It is only after when Jesus restores the relationship with him that he has the ability to write this, to remember this, and to encourage the readers and other disciples that in order to follow Jesus, you need to deny yourself. Is abandoning everything about yourself. And the gospel makes us a clear line for what it means to follow Jesus. We need to obey him, not to debate against God's word. It's a lifelong battle for us as believers. You're, gonna, you're going to struggle with wanting to live life for yourself. And Jesus is saying that if you want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, if you want to be a follower of him, you must deny yourself. In a culture that loves and is self-absorbed, self-obsessed, self-loathing, so much uh, thinking about the self, this is a radical thing just for, not just for back then, but in the present day as well. To live, that, to live in a such a way that is not reflective of your own passions and your desires tells the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because our world loves to think about themselves. I mean, I remember when the word selfie came out. That was such a bizarre word. I mean, it was like right when there was a face camera, the front-facing camera, and people started taking pictures of themselves and then coining the term selfie. It was such a bizarre word, but it's a perfect reflection of how we are. We love and are fully obsessed with ourselves. And yet Jesus is saying, if you want to follow him, if you want to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, you need to take your eyes off yourself and, t- and put your eyes on Jesus Christ. He tells them to deny themselves, and then he tells them to take up his cross. Jesus said this, and it seems very strange because Jesus did, Jesus did not tell them how he was going to die. Earlier, he said he was going to get killed, but he didn't tell them that he was going to go to the cross. In fact, the people understood this term. He said, if you're following Jesus Christ, it means you can take up the cross. They understood what that meant because in the Roman time, they would... When they crucified people, they would put them on outside the city, usually along the roads as a spectacle for people to see what happens if you choose to break the law. Sometimes vultures and different um, flying animals will, 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 will like, you know, gouge out the eyes of the people that are on the cross. Other times dogs will even, or other animals try to eat the feet of the person on the cross as they're still hanging there alive. It's a torturous thing. But yet Jesus said, this is what it takes. If you want to follow me, you need to take up this cross. This is readiness to die for Christ. Again, in the original audience, they were terrified by this because they probably had friends and family that were, that were believers in the faith, fellow believers that's, that actually had to die through crucifixion. This was not something that was easy for them to take in. But yet, Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this so that the people then and now will know that what it takes to follow Jesus is that you're willing to die for Christ, that you're willing to go to the cross and all the shame and pain that comes with it because Jesus did that for us. This is the way that Christians are supposed to live. We're willing to give up our lives for Jesus Christ. At some point in our life, you have to make a decision whether to give up the things of the world or to follow Christ. But when you follow Christ, that might mean that you might lose this life. You know, I think this term, bearing the cross, has this fairly shallow way of thinking about it. We think in terms of like, oh, I have a terrible boss. This is the cross that I need to bear. Or I need to drive and there's traffic. This is the cross that I bear. 
That's a very superficial way of looking at it because it's not about just the, 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 the struggles in life or the annoyances in life. That's not taking up the cross. Bearing your cross, it's not even things that are in terms of physical suffering due to, because of just living in the fallen world. When Jesus talked about taking up the cross, he's talking about representing Christ and suffering for it. That you get canceled or that you lose your job, that you lose your family, that people in your family choose to disown you, remove you from the inheritance, or that your friends don't want to be in your life anymore. That's what it means to take up your cross. That you're willing to lose the, the pleasantries and the pleasures of this world because of Jesus Christ. You follow him by, you take, by taking up the cross. Be willing to pay at any cost for Christ's sake. Walking to death for Christ. Make any sacrifices for Jesus. Maybe losing the things in this world. But you stand up for Christ until people want to put you on the cross. Christianity is costly. And again, this is the first reference here to the cross. And this is marching to your own death for the sake of Jesus Christ. He tells them to not only deny themselves, take up the cross, but to follow him. And this is just to obey Christ in everything. It's this ongoing obedience. It's continually, it's this continual life and the sanctification. It's submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. All Christians desire to obey the Lord, to follow him. You can't follow two masters. You can't say that you love the things of the world or the thoughts of the world and follow Jesus Christ. You're willing to go with Jesus until the very end. This is what 1 John tells us, that we love because Christ loved us first. When you think of just that, first, that book of 1 John, how many, how, how many verses there are that tells us that if you genuinely are a follower of Christ, then there should be an outcome and that looks different. There should be fruit in your life. You need to ask yourself, what are you known for? Are you known for someone that's following Jesus Christ? Or are you known to follow other things of this world? This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus does, wherever Jesus goes, wherever Jesus wants us to be, those are the places that we will go. Those are the things that we will do. It's a constant denying ourselves, continually taking up that cross and faithfully following Jesus Christ. And this is what it means to follow Jesus now, that's just the first point. That's the summary in terms of the condition in the terms of following Jesus Christ, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in the, in the rest of the verses, he expands on those terms. So that's our outline. That, all that was introduction. Our first condition is this. Now, I'll phrase it in the form of a question. Is Christ worth more than anything in your life? Or is, is Christ worth more than everything in your life? Look at verse 35. So for, whatever, for, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. He's speaking to everyone here. Again, sim, he's talking to the whole crowd. He's making this demand for, of them. He's saying that if you want to follow me, this is what it should look like. Whoever wishes to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel He's, not, he's telling people that if you live for yourself, you might be able to live in this life, but you'll lose your soul. On the other end, if you're willing to give up the things in this world for Christ, you might lose this life. Your life might be cut short. Your life might be incredibly uncomfortable. It might be filled with suffering. But in relative to eternity, when you're in eternity with Christ, you have eternal life. 
And it says here, it's for my sake, that Jesus is the supreme one. He's the one that's worth living for. We don't live life for ourselves, but it's only for Christ Jesus. It says it's for his sake and the gospel. You may lose your life for following Christ, for being faithful to God's word in your proclamation and in your lifestyle. This is, uh, this is basically, this is a call for thinking eternally. Because if, if, you, if you try to live your life for yourself, you want to preserve this life so that you can live a peaceful life, but losing Christ, then yes, you're, the outcome that your eternity will be filled with suffering. This is eternal damnation here when it talks about losing your life. And for us, we need to remember, we need to quit holding on to the things of this world because those things in relative to eternity does not matter. What is the point of having this life if you lose the life that is to come? What's the point? What is your life worth? Is this life worth more than the life that is to come? This seems like a paradox. This seems like a contradiction here. How can you deny this life and have eternal life? Yet how can you have how can you have this life and lose the next one? Jesus here shows them this paradox of eternal life. You can have this life with all of his pleasures and riches, but you can lose your eternal life. However you want that future, if you, however, you want the, however, if you want that future glory and eternal life, you will have to get rid of the things in this life for the sake of Christ. Losers are winners in the game of eternity. That's the paradox here. It, goes, it seems uh, backwards, that if you lose in this life for the, name, for the sake of Christ, then you have eternity. For the same token, if you have the, all the things in this world, if you're able to preserve your life and, the, and all the comforts with it, but you deny Jesus Christ, then you suffer for all of eternity. There's a challenge for the people that, to hear this because the, the, te- the temporariness of this life is right before us, and eternities can seem so far away. But yet he's telling us to look beyond this life. That means that you don't live for yourself. And it's very hard, I think, for our generation in particular because we are a generation that loves to consume things. I'm not talking about just food. I mean, just in terms of media, in terms of sports. We're a generation of consumers. You no longer become the center of you, but rather being a Christian means that you're willing to give up your life for the sake of Christ. Now, can you say that about your own life? You call yourself a Christian, but can you truly say that you live like this? Because you will lose, the th- if you lose the things in this life, then you will have eternal life in Christ. But if you try to have the pleasures of this world, then you'll be damned forever. If you're predominantly, if you're predominantly obsessed with yourself, then you will lose your soul. This is the cost that you must lose your life for Christ and the gospel's sake. So ask yourself, is Christ worth more than your life? If you call yourself a Christian, if you agree to the terms of following Jesus Christ, then you must say that Christ following him, to be with him, is worth way more than this life. That I'd rather suffer this momentary light affliction, but yet be in, ter- be in, in paradise with the Lord for eternity as opposed to just feeling the pleasure of this life and, and then enduring God's wrath for all of eternity. That's the first term. The second term is this. 
is Christ worth more than materialism? Is Christ worth more than materialism? Or maybe if you ask another way, is Christ worth more than the things that you can obtain in this life? Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, he's using money terms here. He said, what does it profit a man? Does this a value, a benefit, if he's able to gain the whole world yet lose and forfeit? This word forfeit is this idea of just it's, it's destroy or, or suffering penalty. That's this picture here. And again, you know, Jesus here is actually speaking hyperbole here. He knows that no one can actually obtain everything in the world. Right? You understand this. There's no way that you yourself can actually own everything that this world has to offer. But just think of all the chairs in this room. There's no way you're going to own all the chairs in this room or the building itself or own everyone else's cell phone. There's no way you can even own just even the stuff in this room, let alone own the whole world. But Jesus is saying that what if you have everything? What if you can actually say everything belongs to you, that you could put like a stamp, that this is a property of so-and-so, that everything on this planet has that little phrase, property of, and you can insert your own name. You have the title, the money, the fame, the family, the career. You have everything you've ever wanted, all that you can think of, all the, th- the, the fantasies and all the things that you want, things that you, can even, you can't even imagine having. If you have all of it, what's the point of it? Is it worth your soul? What are you willing to give for your soul? If you gain everything but lose Jesus Christ, it is completely worthless. Is there anything more valuable than your own soul? Think of the opposite as well. If you lost everything but have Christ, do you feel complete? Do you feel satisfied in him? Our security is shown in what we savor. And if we don't savor our Savior, then we'll suffer for it in the, in the long term. Charlemagne was the, some, you guys might know who he is. Now I'm not talking about the modern guy. I'm talking about the guy in history, the guy that legalized Christianity and made it the, uh, the, na- the, the, the one religion, the, the official religion in Europe back in the day. Uh, a thousand years after he died, people decided to open his tomb. Uh, and when they opened it, they found him sitting there. Obviously, he was dead, uh, with a crown on his head, and then there's a Bible open on his lap, and his finger was pointed at this verse. Now, I don't think he, like, went in the tomb and said, okay, now close it, and then and just died there. I think he died, and then, you know, someone dressed him up and put him there and put the Bible there and put his finger there. But it is very telling that those that were around him understands that this is something, this verse is very important to him. That if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul, it profits you nothing. Do you find gain as having Christ or do you find gain in something else in this life? Again, imagine if you were able to have everything in this world, what would you, what, what, is, what do you think life would be like? If you have all the promotion, the prestige, the profit, and possession, what will you truly gain if you lose your soul? This is, again, a money illustration here. What is the worth of all of these things compared to your own soul? 
fact, I would argue, verse 37, it's almost like a looking into the future in hell and looking back, thinking and burning, I wish I did not have those things. I wish I was, I, I'm willing to give up all of that if my soul can be rescued. Think of yourself and ask yourself this question. Is Christ worth more than the things that this world has to offer? And I'm not even just talking about physical possession. I'm talking about, even, I know we're in a digital age, just even the digital things that you connect, you collect. Whether it is those NFTs or stocks or things that you don't, that are not in the tangible world. Are those things worth more than Jesus Christ? Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, this old theologian, he said that the greatest threat to Christianity in the modern day, so he's, like almost, he's talking almost like 100 years before, is materialism. That we are going to be a culture that is so obsessed with stuff that we end up giving up Jesus Christ for it. You will lose all of the things that you have. All of us. We came into this world with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. And, one, and we're going to stand before God. And if we belong to him, we may have lost everything in this world, but we gain him. And, that is our, and he is our greatest prize. But if you have all the things in this world and you don't have Christ, then you're going to spend all of eternity regretting that you made that purchase, that you were obsessed with that, next, that trend and buying that thing. Whatever it may be, whatever money can buy, you look back and realize that all those things are completely useless. The Christian life is a backwards life. It's not trying to gain this world or hang on or hold on to the things that we have. Rather, we look to the future wealth that we have in Christ, the, the promises that God has in terms of what he'll give us, these, the things that will not be taken away, will not be stolen. These are things that we, look, we work towards, not the things of this world. So, first condition of following Jesus Christ is Christ worth more than your life? Second one is, is Christ worth more than materialism? Your last question in terms of the condition of following Christ is this. Is Christ worth more than fame? Is Christ worth more than fame? Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This word ashamed is just another word for it to be embarrassed and something like ashamed of. I think we understand what that, that idea is, is that we want to disassociate ourselves with the person. Again, you can see Peter's maturity here as he looks back at his life because he denied Jesus. He was ashamed of him. But, and at that moment of weakness, he realized, yeah, he failed. But yet that's the cost of following Jesus. He eventually repented, obviously. But he's telling, and again, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he's writing this to let him know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot be ashamed of him. He said, ashamed of me and my words. And that's very interesting because he's speaking of himself in terms of his deity, but also the things that he say. All the stuff that he, all the things that are written in Scripture. In our day and age, Christians, especially if you look at the last two years, there's so many people that deconstructed their faith. They look at the God's word and they're deconstructing it or all the concept because they think that it's racist or that it's not up to modern standards. 
That's people being ashamed of the gospel. That's people being ashamed of God's word. And Jesus described these people here as an adulterous and sinful generation. This is a reference to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, as well as verse, chapter 1, verse 21. In those contexts, it's Israel being ashamed of Yahweh's words. And, they, and because of that, they were unfaithful to the Lord. And that's the same idea that Jesus is trying to recall here to the minds of the reader. For the, for the Jews, they will understand this. But for the Gentiles, they may, not, they may not understand the Old Testament reference, but they get the concept here. They understand that it's, it's, this, it's this world that loves to live for themselves and denying God's word. And he said that if you are ashamed of me, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is actually the first reference in the book of Mark, talking about the second coming of Christ, where he's going to return. He's going to come back in the future one day with all his, his angels. And the goal here, again, is to strengthen the believers that are reading this and to strengthen us as well, because they are looking forward to the return of Christ just as much as we're looking forward to that time. But when Peter wrote this and when he experienced it, he didn't fully understand what was going on here. But I think as he matured in the faith, when he had full revelation, he understood that Peter, as well as the disciples reading this, and even to the disciples today, that we cannot be ashamed of Jesus Christ because the Lord is coming soon. It's imminent. He will return one day, and we don't want to be found as a people or a generation that is ashamed of him. Rather, we want to walk faithfully and not be ashamed of him. You, and the reason why some people are ashamed is really because they want fame. Right? They want to be well-liked by the world. That's the only reason why people would be ashamed of the gospel. That's why even like 20 years ago, people would, were not ashamed of the scriptures, or at least uh, they won't publicly deny the scriptures, though even there was some reverence for it, because there was some sort of social benefit in calling yourself a Christian. Nowadays, it seems to be dwindling. Calling yourself a Christian, calling yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, calling yourself someone that trusts and believes in God's word is not going to give you any social credit anymore. And gradually you can see in our culture that people, they deny Christ because they want fame. They're ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed of the things that the Bible teaches because they want to be liked by the world. It's a fear of man over fearing the Lord. You can be well known throughout this world and maybe be famous or infamous for years to come, but eventually your fame will be forgotten. If you want to deny the Lord and live for the world to try and maintain your reputation, if you're ashamed of him, he is going to reject you. He's going to be ashamed of you one day if you choose to reject him. Living for the things and the, a good reputation inside of the world in, in according to the world's terms, is not going to last. It's a fleeting endeavor to want to live, to have a good reputation as opposed to being living faithfully for the Lord. People might shame you for that, to live faithfully for him, but you're not ashamed of God's word. I remember several years ago, there was a huge story on the news about, it was like all over the news. You probably all have not thought about this until I'm going to bring this up, but there was this one story of a case called The Balloon Boy. And I remember it was all in every channel. You see, I, I didn't even have my smartphones. I think they were around, but Wi-Fi was not, or there was no 3G at the time. Internet wasn't great back then. 
But you were watching on TV, and there was this balloon boy, and apparently this boy was working with his dad on this project in his backyard, and somehow he, they turned the balloon on, he was stuck on top of this balloon, and then uh, all over the world, people were panicking. Was, did the boy fall off the balloon? They, had, they like, sent in like, fighter jets just to try to see this kid. And then after what seems like age, it was really about like a few hours, but for the parents, it seemed like an eternity, uh, they found out that the boy was actually just hiding in the attic all along. And when they got the family back together, quote unquote, back together, they asked the kid, why did you hide in the basement when your family was calling you? They were scared for hours and hours. And the kid forgot his lines because he said, because I, I'm, we're doing it for the TV show. And then everyone was like, what? What TV show? And, and, it's just, and then the parents, you can tell on their face, like, oh, we're caught. We're doomed. And they found out after you know, interrogations and police investigation, they realized that the family plotted all of this so that they could be well-liked by the world, so that they could be on a reality show. They said that we were trying to apply for these reality shows, but we were known as a boring family. So they tried to make themselves interesting by orchestrating this whole event. Now, I bet you in the last 365 days, none of you thought about that until this message. By God's grace, I can use them as an illustration. But none of you thought about it. They tried to be famous or infamous. Eventually, things, uh, eventually they fed, um, went into obscurity. Yet that is exactly how our life is when we try to live for any type of fame in this world. If you think that obtaining some sort of good reputation for, for likes in this world or so from retweets or hashtags, it's completely useless because all of those things are going to burn once uh, Christ's return. Your fame will go up in flames and be burned because there's nothing valuable, valuable about these things. And yet so many people out of trying to be liked by the world are become ashamed of Jesus Christ. Now you need to ask yourself this question, are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? You may not try to obtain some sort of huge following, but even in your circles of influence, are you ashamed? Do you want your family to like you and not cause any rift between your family because you don't want them to know that you are a Christian, so you hide it? Are you the kind of person that, that jokes around with your coworkers and talk like them because you don't want people to know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? You want to be liked by them. You want to be in the in crowd. What areas do you find yourself caring more about the opinions of man rather than God's opinion of you? Because if you're ashamed of him, and this doesn't have to be something verbal, just even in your own heart, God sees that and he'll be ashamed of you in the future. To deny or be ashamed of Jesus will come, will eventually mean that God will be ashamed of you in the future. The only person whose opinion matters, then the person who you should really care about is God himself. You don't need to worry about your reputation. You, you don't need to try to be a celebrity. You don't, want, you don't need to try to be liked by other theologians. You just need to be known by the Lord for being faithful to him and not ashamed of him. These are the conditions of following Jesus Christ. Are you willing to give up everything and follow him? Are you willing to give up materialism? Are you willing to give up fame to follow him? These things are listed. Again, there are, in a lot of ways, it is hyperbole because there's no way that you're going to be known throughout the entire world. There's no way you're going to have all the things in this world. So what you're actually willing to give up to Christ, uh, give up Christ for is actually a lot less 
And that's so sad for us because I'm going to be really honest. None of you are going to be super wealthy enough to own the world. None of you are going to be so famous that everyone knows you. But yet we live as if one day we could achieve these things. And if you live like that and you, and you end up drifting away or end up denying Christ for it, it is, com- it is completely foolish to do so. Your life is not going to be as long as you may think. Your money is not going to be as, is not going to worth as much as you think. And your name is not going to be as popular as you think. Some of you are willing to give up something that's so small for something so great that is in Jesus Christ. Again, for us as believers, the cost of discipleship will cost you everything, but it is completely worth it. Is Jesus Christ worth it? Do you agree to the terms of being a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ? The answer that will resonate and echo throughout eternity is that Jesus, for believers here is that yes, Jesus is worth it. I'm willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. And not only that, God is so kind. Not only does he give us the terms in terms of what it means to follow him, but he gives us the grace to fulfill those terms as well. God gives us the grace uh, to, to know him, and he also gives us the ability to fulfill what it means to follow him. He will persevere us to the very end. He will sustain us. He will sanctify us. He will give us greater desires for him. All we have to do is continue to be obedient to him, and the Lord will work in our hearts so that we can make it to the very end. So for those that are non-Christians, my hope for you is that you realize that Jesus is worth far more than what this world has to offer. Everything in this world is passing away. Don't lose Christ for the fleeting pleasures of this world. Understand that Christ is worth so much more than the things in this life. So do you accept the terms in following Jesus? And I hope that you accept it and by God's grace live out the conditions that you agree to. The cost of discipleship will cost you everything, but it is completely worth it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, help us. There are so many things and temptations and lurements of this world that can draw us away from you. And I pray that as we look through this passage, as we think about what it means to follow you, that we take your commandments seriously, that we're willing to deny ourselves, to pick up the cross and to follow you, even if it means that this life could be hard, even if it means that we die for you, Lord. Give us the grace to do so. Lord, we want to live according to your terms. We don't want to live uh, in the name of Christianity in the terms from our own minds, from our own feelings, or from the ideas of the world. Lord, help us always to look to your word and and allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to show us areas where we need to let go of because you're so much more superior. You're so much more, you're so much better than what this world has to offer. Lord, may we all be satisfied in you. May we constantly repent and turn away from the things of this world that is just fleeting away. Lord, thank you again for this reminder. Help us endure faithfully until the very end. It's your son's name I pray. Amen.